Challenges to belief in God is the problem of evil. How do the world views of naturalism and pantheism answer this challenge of evil? Does Christianity have a good answer? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's message by Dr. Oz Guinness was recorded at our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. This conference is hosted each year by Pat Zucran. Pat presents many renowned Christian apologists and international speakers, all experts in their field. This year's theme was Apologetics That Connects. If you're unable to hear this entire message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's Dr. Guinness with part one of his message entitled Unspeakable, Facing the Challenge of Evil. We have a saying back in Oxford, which is my home, after lunch speaking is the art of talking in someone else's sleep. <laughs> so this is the sleepy hour, but we're taking a big, tough topic. I said yesterday I wanted to look at two talks on the challenges of the world we're facing today, and then today just two talks in terms of an apologetic response. This first one what is surely the greatest objection and challenge we face, evil. And in the second one, what is surely the hardest part of any responding, how do we speak to people who are not open at all, closed, hostile, indifferent? So let's pick up these two. The day after 9-11, I was on television, and the opening question was, where was God when the tower fell? An hour later, I was on NPR, and the reporter said, I saw a woman running through the smoke crying out, God, where are you? The reporter said to me, what should I say to her? Both of them apologized afterwards. They knew that that required soundbite answers, which are quite impossible with big questions like that. And yet, that's the media, and that's the cry of the heart. Where is God? How can we answer things like that. 9-11 was actually in the calendar of my wife and I because I was invited by some Wall Street bankers to speak at the St. Regis Hotel on evil. And a week before September the 11th, the hotel phoned and they double booked and it was postponed. And then came 9-11. And I thought they'd drop it in the light of all that has happened. They said no. They'd like to meet a week after 9-11. So we met in the St. Regis Hotel. The only other people in the hotel were from Sandler O'Neill, a company that lost more than 70 people in the strike. In our group, we had someone who'd got down from the 104th floor of the second tower. When everyone else had stopped and been told they could go back, he just ran, 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 and got out and away. But I've never been in any discussion of evil or suffering, whether you could cut the atmosphere with a knife. Many of them had already attended more than 20 funerals that week. And the man who introduced me, he said, we have these readings we're going to discuss, and before 9-11, I thought they were rather too dark. After 9-11, I don't think they're nearly dark enough for what I've seen. Evil and suffering are the greatest mysteries of our human life. They are the greatest challenge and problem of our modern world. Think what we're seeing in the Middle East. 
and they are the greatest objection to our faith in a good God. So we cannot duck this one. I don't think any of us has a perfect answer to this. But we're responsible to think through the best answer we can have and then share it with people. One of the American philosophers said that you should always give to people's answers to evil what he called the mourner's test. Can you take the answer and share it with someone at a graveside so it is emotionally practical and not just some philosophical discussion. Now the way I handle this, and I've had to think of this, I grew up in China. My parents were married just a little bit after the Japanese invasion. 17 million were killed in that invasion with a policy of loot all, burn all, kill all. And we were in a place in north-central China where there was a terrible famine. Ten million refugees were on the road. Five million died. And we were living in that. And from then onwards, I grew up in a world of death, terror, fear, evil on all sides. And we moved to Nanking, as it was then, which you just experienced the terrible rape of Nanking. And so my own parents gave me a deeply realistic view of evil and suffering from the very beginning. My own way of approaching it is obviously we answer each person individually. I'll stress that again tonight. Jesus never gave canned answers. Jesus never gave recipes. Jesus never gave formulae. He always spoke to every single person as an individual person. But in my mind, having talked to hundreds, I don't know, thousands maybe, if you put audiences together, talking to thousands of people, these are the steps I think it through. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm doing. I don't for a minute... When someone raises a question like this, just mechanically go through one, two, th no. This afternoon we haven't got time to go through very many of them. But in my mind's eye, I've thought through along with others, what is a human being? Not first and foremost a Christian, we're humans first. And we're talking to fellow humans. How does a human being think through this central challenge to life? And so the various steps and answers are in the back of my mind. And so when people speak... I try and find out where they are in their particular journey, in their particular questioning, and then just take a little bit of what I'm saying this afternoon and relate it to exactly where they are. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not giving you something you rattle through mechanically. That would be deadening and quite awful. But we need to think through some of these things. And too many people start immediately with our Christian answers without ever thinking what it has led them to be where they are. First of all, though, the first step is always to recognize the sources of evil and suffering. Those two things are not the same. Put simply, evil is active. Suffering is passive. You have a mugging. The mugger is evil, an active physical act of mugging. The person mugged, the muggy, is the one who suffers. So evil and suffering often come together, but they're not the same, and we need to distinguish them. The trouble is, as we'll see in a minute, the 20th century has blown the old definition of evil. It used to be evil was the intent to do harm. Malice of forethought, as the law says. Intent to do harm. But we'll see many good people did very bad things in the 20th century, as, say, in the Holocaust, 
without any intent to do harm. They were part of a system that did terrible harm. And we've got to expand our understanding to take in that highly modern form of evil. But we need to recognize the sources of evil and suffering. Now the simple fact is, and a lot of Christians go wrong here, we do not know the ultimate source. We know it's from the evil one, yes, biblically. But what the scriptures tell us is how evil enters planet Earth. It does not tell us how evil entered the cosmos. How an angelic being became the Lord's and our satanic adversary, we don't know. The Bible hasn't told us. Some people say Isaiah 14 describes it, actually describing Babylon. If you describe it, you're speculating, and you're free to do that so long as you say it's a speculation. The grandest speculation is John Milton's Paradise Lost, and many of you may have studied that. A grand speculation of how the evil one fell, but we don't know it. What we do know, and this is what matters for us as individuals, how evil and suffering hit us in our immediate lives, either through our bodies or through nature or through our fellow human beings. They're different. Think of the first. These little bodies we have are our power packs, which we live our three score years and ten, give or take a few. They're vulnerable to all sorts of genetic dysfunctions before we're born and to a thousand diseases and medical problems after we're born, right down to things that we're concerned about today like dementia and Alzheimer's. Our bodies. This is an Olympic year. On the one hand, we can admire the incredible strength and speed and agility of some of the greatest young human bodies in our sports world. But we also know cancer and strokes and a hundred other things that strike in. When Winston Churchill, our great British Prime Minister, came across to the US in the end of the 20s, he forgot which side of the road the traffic was on. And going uptown in Manhattan to see one of his Jewish friends, he stepped out in the street and was hit by a car going about 35. Nearly killed. He said, I don't know how I wasn't broken like an eggshell and crushed like a gooseberry. These little bodies of ours are very, very frail. The second source of evil and suffering is clearly nature. We've all seen tsunamis and hurricanes and earthquakes and with television and so on we can experience the horror of this. All the things we may face individually are dwarfed by these enormous forces of nature before which we're powerless. As I said, my family and I and my two brothers were caught in a terrible famine in which five million died in three months, including my two brothers. My mother was a surgeon. There was no medicine, no food. She said she could have been a ballet dancer or a stockbroker for all the use she was as a doctor without any medicine. And people were literally dying all over the place by the hundreds. Couples grasping each other in the fields and just lying there till they went. And in the face of a famine like that, Humans were impotent. But of course, the third source is by far the deepest, our fellow human beings. Think of the last century. A third of a billion killed altogether. A hundred million in war. Another hundred million in political repression. Maybe 75 million in China alone by Mao Zedong. And another hundred million with sectarian violence across the world. 
In other words, a third of a billion human beings killed by their fellow human beings. As G.K. Chesterton often used to smile, we talk of wild animals, we are the wildest animal of all. Now, recognizing the sources doesn't take us very far, but it should give everyone a deep sense of realism. And a lot of people don't have that. Hopefully also compassion. Because most people would like to reach out to people in their need, if only because they hope someone would reach out to them if they were in a similar situation. It doesn't get us very far, but gives us a deep understanding of the realism. The simple fact is that any of us may suffer, and all of us will die. As Ernest Hemingway says, if you tell anyone's story long enough, it will have to include death. Any of us may suffer, all of us will die, that is human life. That's the first step. It doesn't take us very far. Second step, appreciate the questions. When people experience either evil or suffering, remember they're different, the human heart and the human mind are pressed and irrepressibly they bubble up with deep, deep questions. Now, of course, every sufferer is unique. So I'm not saying there's any canned approach, but you can listen to all the questions that come up and Usually, they're one of three or a combination of these three. Why me? Where's God? And how can I stand it? Why me? Some of you may have read the story of a Christian professor in the Northwest who took his wife and his mother and his kids to a, a day of homeschooling and they visited a native reservation. Wonderful day, ending in the power and then at the end of the day, they bundled the family into the minivan and set off home. Two miles down the road, a drunken local plowed into them, and in two terrible minutes of carnage, all the women in the family were killed. The mother, the grandmother, and the daughters. But after that, the father and the boys, for years, their minds were squirreling around. Why them, not us? If only the driver had stopped to have one more beer or three beers less or they'd stayed ten minutes more on the power or whatever. Three soldiers go over the brow of the hill. Two of them are shot dead instantly and the third one is unscathed except for the post-traumatic distress syndrome and the rest of his life. Nightmares. Why me? Solzhenitsyn, if you've read the Gulag Archipelago, why him? Why not the thousands of the dying around him, and he was left as a witness. I often wonder, why me? I survived and my two brothers are buried in China. Why me? Normally life, the earth, it's terra firma. You stand on it and it's solid. It's self-evidence taken for granted. And suddenly, everything's a little nervous. Everything's a little random. Why me? And you're not sure. The second question, where's God? Something hits someone that's so irrational. There's no reason for it. It's so unjust. It's so horribly unfair. Someone must have an answer. And of course, you go back and back and back and back. And finally, as we know well, even the atheists blame a God in whom they don't believe. But we shouldn't laugh. It's the instinctive cry of the heart that wants to blame someone and to give a reason for some way. If there's a God, Baudelaire said, he's the devil. The only excuse for God, Stondahl said, is he doesn't exist. 
But we can't use that against the atheists because the greatest cry of all was who? Our Lord. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we know he's quoting Psalm 22. But do you think he's just quoting it in a hollow way of a quote? Rather than it being wrung out of the anguish or the desolation of the heart of our Lord as he bears our sin and he's separated from the Father? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you can read C.S. Lewis as a grief observed and you can see the same thing. Many, many believers as well as unbelievers in that time of desperate evil and suffering, their hearts cry out and it's natural. But the third question is actually the toughest. How can I stand it? On the surface, that sounds like, and it is, the most practical. When people are in desperate pain, someone being tortured by an illness or literally being tortured, They want to hang on to something to get them through. Get them through the day. Get them through the night. And I call many of those things little fridge truths, simple statements you hang on to, and so on. That third one, how can I stand it, is very, very practical. But if you think for a minute, it's profoundly philosophical. Albert Camus says in the myth of Sisyphus, the only deeply philosophical question is suicide. Is he being gloomy? No, no. What he means is, what you face when you're tempted to commit suicide but don't or do, you go down to the deepest why that you have to stay alive. You've got a why? You can hang on. As Nietzsche said rightly, he who has a why can bear any how. And people who have no why often can't make it. Do you know that it was the atheists, and this really counts against them, it was the atheists who had no answer to the horror of Auschwitz, and it was many of the intellectual atheists who committed suicide. Jean Améry, the mind at the end of its tether, Bruno Bettelheim, and supremely, we all know over here, Elie Wiesel, the American survivor, but he's a strong Jewish believer. But the European equivalent was Primo Levi, a Jewish atheist. And if you know his story, one day in Auschwitz, he was desperately thirsty as well as hungry. But outside the camp, it was winter, a huge icicle has formed. And he thought, a free drink. So he reaches out for the icicle, and the guards seeing it smashed it to the ground so he couldn't touch it. And instinctively, Levi cried out, why? And the German guard answered with a cold brutality. Here, there is no why. Arbitrary, brutal, cynical power. No reasons. Levy survived, like Wiesel. And for 47 years, he lived to be a witness so that never again it might happen. And then took his life. And before he did it, he phoned a rabbi in Rome to explain his despair. He had no why. Now, those are the sort of answers, questions rather, to which we have to give the answers. Step three is to understand the impact of modernity on evil and suffering. The impact of modernity. Now, the last century was the most murderous century in all human history. People say, are we more evil today? I don't think so. Same evil through which Cain killed Abel? is the same evil through which Hitler and his henchmen 
kill the Jews and many others. We're not more evil, but we are more modern. And the modern world amplifies evil. I was talking about some of the aspects of modernity last night, but let's look at it a different way. Modernity, advanced modernity, has an impact on evil in three ways. The first of which is actually good, but it has a downside. Modernity minimizes pain. Pain and mortality used to be everywhere. Queen Anne lost 14 children. The Queen, with all the best of medicine in the early 18th century, and so on. 14 children in infant mortality. Many of you have probably never seen anyone die. That's our modern world. And as historians say, with the invention of anesthesia in the 1830s, and later the humble aspirin in the 1890s, it was said in the 18, about 1900, for the first time in human history, most adults in the modern world could live most of their lives without any pain. Thank God for modern medicine. But there's a downside to something that's a real blessing, and that is we're unrealistic. Many Americans don't know suffering. They don't see death. And so you have a country that can glory in polyannerism and plaster smiley buttons all over the face as if this is our world. It is not our world. And we see on television very naturally the savagery of human beings to other human beings and the disasters of famines and earthquakes and other things. This is mostly good. The modern world minimizes pain. But there's a downside. It's left us, many of us, very, very unrealistic. The second and third things are answer good. The modern world magnifies destructiveness. Now probably immediately you're thinking, ah, weaponry, atomic bombs. No, as you know well, only one nation in the world, thank God, has used one, and you used it in the name of democracy. Imagine if Hitler or Stalin had had one, or Idi Amin, or Saddam Hussein, or whatever. I don't mean that, though. Why is there a great increase in the destructiveness of evil? It's actually things like the division of labor and the diffusion of responsibility, things that are written into the very way we run modern life. Auschwitz was run on the same principles as Volkswagen and founded around the same time. You think of a B-29 bomber just pressing a button at 29,000 feet. There's no personal pain like you'd face with a sword gouging out whatever, of a man in front of you. None of that. It's all at distance. Now we just press buttons in this country and a drone can zap our enemies over there and we don't even think about it. And you can see it's things like that that made so many good people, in quotes, do incredibly bad things. And they were good people. Yes, they were monsters. They were malevolent monsters like Hitler and Goering and people like that who plotted the terrible things that went on. But they didn't do any of the dirty work. It was done by good, ordinary Germans who were just cogs in the machine. Part of what was going on with this sort of labor, each doing their little part and so on. And the question is today whether we're in danger of the same sort of things, being so detached from the things done in our name that we bear no ethical responsibility for them at all. And the destructiveness goes on. But the third impact of modernity is that it marginalizes traditional ways of handling these things. What do I mean? Well, on the one hand, 
Traditional categories like right, wrong, true, false have gone. And on the other hand, traditional ways of handling it, say through pastors or through community responses, are pushed to one side. And we have the specialists brought in, the experts in grieving and mourning. You've got to go through the following ten steps of mourning to really do it properly. So at Columbine, in the school massacre, the first instincts were the community coming together. Andy Murray, our British tennis player, he was a small boy at the massacre in Dunblane School where he went. The Queen herself came and just hugged the children. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. Be sure to join us once again as we enjoy another exciting show. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Join us once again, on the air or online, as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ, right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh, 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 oh.